drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Welcome to the drawing room, a space for intimate and surprising conversations. I'm Andy Park. Robert Desai is an essential part of the Australian literary world. As a writer, as a performer, as an interviewer on this very network, he's explored the meaning of life and the stories behind the stories. For that work, he's the recipient of the 2022 Australian Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature. He was also sharing some of the work we may have missed along the way in a new collection called Abracadabra. And just like that... He's here in the drawing room. Welcome to you. Come on in, take a seat, Robert. Thank you, Andy. Pleased to be here. You write that Francis Bacon's screaming Pope paintings might mean a lot to someone, but never enough until they know Bacon's obsession with the portrait of Pope Innocent the X by Velázquez. How have you sought out those discoveries? How does your brain work? I mean, tell me everything. I mean, <laughs> tell me everything. It's a magpie's brain. It's not really a very clever brain. It's not a very profound brain. It's a magpie's brain. And the multimedia that we have these days allow me to be a very smart little magpie and find shiny things all over the place. And that's how it works. I think that's always how my psychologies work. That's why I'm not a very good scholar. I was a scholar. I wrote a doctorate. I wrote a Master of Arts. I was at the university for years and years and years and thought I was a scholar. I'm not a scholar. I just don't have the right way of thinking. I like picking up bright, shiny things, particularly aquamarine or ruby red, and putting them together and seeing what happens. And that's what I do with my writing. You say Francis Bacon to me, I think of Francis Bacon, I watch a movie about Francis Bacon, I look at some of his paintings online, see what thoughts occur to me. It's not profound scholarship, but I think it's something that my readers enjoy. It's like watching me work and watching me be alive when I work. It's the connections between two points, not the two points. And, you know, exactly. it takes a real... Well, yeah, you're right, a magpie's brain to find those connections. And are you saying that the sort of life of scholarship doesn't allow you to be obsessive when you want to be? It doesn't allow you to be creative in quite the same way, I think, because you're usually creating inside a framework of some kind, an ideological framework or a framework that suits the head of department or suits your colleagues. It may be one that actually frees you up, but... For me, it's better to have no framework, to discover it as I go along, to start thinking about Francis Bacon or to think about popes or to think about screaming or to think about art and see what happens. That's what works better for me. So what's your portrait of Pope Innocent? What are your obsessions that uh, have informed the work you've created? No one's ever asked me that before. It's a very interesting question. It is touching something inside me, which I'm finding it very hard to uh, look at steadily with my inner eye. I think deep inside me, there is an obsession with how to spend time. Not the big things. I know how to go to this concert or to go to London and look at this exhibition or even how to fall in love, let's say. It's how to spend ordinary time. It's how to do the washing, how to do the cleaning, how to do the gardening, what to do when you smash a glass and the glass goes all over the floor. How do you make sense of the day which is largely taken up with banalities? That interests me a lot because our lives are largely taken up 
with banalities, with things of no lasting importance. Well, they're only banalities if you treat them that way. Well, that's right, you see. But you do usually because you think that importance lies in a more public space in some kind of limelight and that patting the dog isn't important in quite the same way. When you get to my age, you realise that what you remember about life is not meeting Mario Vargas Llosa or George Steiner uh, or the Queen. I've actually never met the Queen, but I thought I'd throw the Queen in. <laughs> it's patting the dog on a particular afternoon by the water in Hobart. That's what I remember. Just as I don't really remember being married, I can't remember much about it at all. It was just there. Can you remember being a young boy? I mean, take me back to the days of a young Robert, your dreams of the limelight. I didn't dream of the limelight. I thought that I would be a teacher of French and I was very happy about that. I didn't really want to do anything else. And then one day when I was walking along William Street in Sydney, I thought I'd just pop into the ABC and see if they might have a job for me. No, 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 they didn't have a job for me. So I left my phone number and one day they rang me and then I was able to make my program and I was able to find a voice, you see. I don't know if you agree with me, but what radio does is it gives you a voice and that's all you are really. You are a voice. You are a kind of spiral of words. And that's what the ABC gave me. And once it had given me that, in order to speak to the audience, I was able to write. I couldn't have written before that. I kind of think about it like it's a, a submarine that allows you to plumb the depths of your own curiosity. Oh, and you can beautiful. never go deep enough. Never. And that's what, I think that's what radio means to me, because we can go off and talk about anything we want. Anything they won't all. stop us. <laughs> so, well, then let's talk about your discovery of your way of performing. You have a very idiosyncratic way. Did that come through writing or, or radio in the first instance? But it's not idiosyncratic to me. <laughs> well, I've judged you then. Sorry. That's all right. I just am myself. I don't feel idiosyncratic or unusual in any way. You don't think that you have an idiosyncratic way of thinking? No, I just think. Get up in the morning at half past seven and by about nine o'clock I'm thinking. I don't feel there's anything odd about it or about the way I speak. Nobody said odd. Oh, I, I said, said idiosyncratic. You did, yes. You're very polite. Well, it just feels normal to me. I do notice that certain kind of reader and a certain kind of listener likes to engage with me. I do see that. But no, I feel very ordinary. And what I think I've done in my work is redeem my utter ordinariness. That's what I think of my work as being a redemption of ordinariness, a redemption of uninterestingness. That's how I see it. And I do it through words. The only thing I've got is words. I can speak some Russian, I can speak some French, I can speak some English. It's all words. There is nothing else. I can't change a light bulb. I can't drive a car. Just words. You say some Russian, but you studied and taught Russian. You translated many of the classics. What actually brought you to Russian in the first place? What you called, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, what called you, I should say, into the language of those writers? Postage stamps. I come from an era when little boys collected postage stamps. Little girls didn't, I think. But little boys did. 
I collected stamps and all the autocracies, all the really nasty dictatorships around the world issued the most beautiful stamps. What is the correlation with authoritarianism and exotic stamps? I don't know. Someone will have written a doctorate on the subject. Soviet stamps were fabulous and I wanted to read what was written on them. And so I bought a dictionary at the local paper shop, as we called news agencies in those days, and I started to read what was written there. They said uninteresting things like Mayakovsky Station or Botanical Garden Station. And then I thought, no, I'll, I'll, I'll go and learn this language. So at the age of about nine, I joined the Workers' Education Association Russian classes. And then I did it for the high school certificate here in Sydney at North Sydney Boys High School. And then I went to Moscow University and I started to teach it. It sort of took off. I love the Russian language, you see. I'm a very un-Russian person. There's nothing Russian about me at all. But the language is the richest language, apart from English, that I have ever encountered. What can you say in Russian that you can't say in English or French or German for that matter? You can say things in 10 different ways, as you can in English usually, because it has different roots, as English has Latin roots and Romance roots and other roots nowadays from the empire, of course. This gives the language a richness. So you don't have to just say, I'm sad. You can say, I'm despondent, I'm depressed. I'm all sorts of things, actually. The words won't come now, of course, because I'm sitting in an ABC studio. But in Russian, you also have a vast array of high and low words from low Russian, from the Russian Orthodox Church, from Old Church Slavonic, all sorts of sources. And it's also the way the language is um, structured, that you can play with it. You can stick a prefix in here, a suffix in there, and change the sense of the sentence. That's how I feel about it. I love it. And I'm, I'm heartbroken to see what Russia is doing in the world now because I gave you know half my life, if not more, to Russia. And now I wish I'd taken up Portuguese, to be absolutely honest or Spanish, or Hindi. So do you feel that, well, despondent about Russian culture now that it seems to be the enemy of the West? I do. My fear was really 19th century Russian, and of course that's still intact. That's Pushkin, that's Tolstoy, Dostoevsky. Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn, not so much. Uh, Solzhenitsyn was really 20th century, and I didn't much like the way he thought. But 19th century classics, Tolstoy and Turgenev, Chekhov, who was at the end of the century, they were civilised people. And I was looking for ways to become civilised. I was a little boy from a lower middle class family who wanted to be civilised. And <laughs> so my way was through French literature and Russian literature. And I feel that I have been betrayed by the elite in Russia today who turn out to be as crass and as grasping as any other elite in the world. And yes, in some sense, I'm serious when I say, if only I had taken up Portuguese or Spanish or Italian, life would have been still full of adventures and exciting discoveries. I know what you mean about, um, certainly with the Romance languages, the things you can say, the nuances that you don't have in English. I speak some Spanish. There's this concept of lastima and pena. One means uh, you can feel sorry for someone, but they're helpless. And then the other is you can feel sorry for someone, but you can help them. Oh, that is useful. <laughs> 
Well, English is good at this, of course. I mean, English is very rich in its vocabulary and it, its registers and its moods. And I love English. It's my first language. But I did start learning French very, very early and Russian early. And so I think that my English is particularly rich and colourful because I know other languages. Mm. Mm. I hope that... Uh, I never lose them entirely. Although as you go older, you know, one of the things that fades is your memory of words and expressions. Well, there's plenty of them left, I'm sure. You learnt from Enid Blyton that adventure and travel is best when home is good, uh, when the travel isn't an escape from something else. Has the idea been important within your life, creating a good home? You were talking earlier before we came on about Hobart and your love of Hobart. Home is a place that can't be re replaced, uh, can't be offset, can it? Home is where your heart is at rest, I think. That's the point. It's not the only place in your universe, but it's where your heart is at rest and feels happy. Your heart, not necessarily your mind. But what Ina Blyton gave me, which no one else gave me when I was a small boy, was the notion that what made for a good life was going towards a secret place, the place that used to moor at the top of the faraway tree, or it could have been Kieran Island in the famous five books. You would go with your friends. Friendship was always very important in the inner button. To a secret place, you would have an adventure with a dog. That's vital. And then you would hurry home to tea. This was very important in the inner button. And I still do it. I think it's important to hurry home to tea, to hurry home to the centre of your psychic being. And when your sense of home is healthy, as I think mine is really, then I think you can travel better and you can leave home more easily and find it important to leave home because a home is where your heart is most peacefully creative and loved and at rest. There's this saying that my generation have, which is go hard or go home. I don't know anyone that would choose to go hard rather than go home. Going home sounds lovely. It is lovely. And so <laughs> it's not Hobart, of course. It's my partner. It's my dog. It's, it's the experiences I have in Hobart. I could do that in Khartoum. Well, maybe not in Khartoum, but almost anywhere except Khartoum. On ABCRN, I'm Andy Park. Robert Desai is my guest in the drawing room. We're talking about, well, let's talk about his new collection, Abracadabra. How did you find these gems? Have you always known they were there? Uh, and how do you re-kind of order them for a new audience? It's difficult, actually. I thought it would be easy. It's just that when you give a, a speech, when you give a speech at a festival, it usually is these days, a literary festival, but it might be at some other venue, at university or occasionally on air, let's say, you can put an awful lot of work into it. It might take me a month to write a thousand words, for example. I would spend three to four weeks on a thousand words if it were to be a public event. And then you deliver it and it's over, gone, finished, doesn't exist anymore, except on my computer. And so I thought some of those talks were good, you know, they were really interesting. They touched on things I really talk about and I think I found good words for those things. And so I searched them out and I rewrote them, trying to evoke a greater sense of intimacy because when you speak in public, intimacy is hard to evoke. Whereas I think it's one of the things I've got to offer a reader, a sense of closeness to me, a sense of playfulness with me, a sense of companionship 
with me. And so I had to rework them and it took me quite a long time. And there's a variety of subjects for that reason in the book. I mean, kissing, for example, is there. Uh, where babies come from is there, for example. A gossip? The whole thing is gossip, really. <laughs> Well, let me ask you, why is gossip useful and possibly even important? Because it challenges what seems to be. When you gossip over the back fence, you probably don't gossip over the back fence. But when you do, you're challenging the received view of something, really. You're saying, let me tell you something. Have I got news for you, in other words? And so you gossip. And the Bible doesn't like gossip for this reason, because... The Bible thinks you're going to say something hurtful. Well, or it's a murmur of uh, an uprising uh, to challenge the status quo. Hence exactly. your point. Yeah, That's right. Well, I think gossip is a very good mode to be in because it's saying, you think this is the case? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that it's not the case. And that's why my work, to the fury of my editors, is full of phrases like actually. I say one thing and then I say actually. Or as a matter of fact, or you might think so, but there are lots of buts in my work. But, I was about to say. <laughs> These are all the phrases, by the way, that the Radio National uh, audience likes to write in and uh, criticise one for using. Did you get a lot of that back in the day? No, perhaps I edited <laughs> myself. I don't remember. People did complain a few times about things I said about religion, I seem to remember. But that's about it, really. Uh, one audience member called on the Virgin Mary to curse me, I remember, uh, which was severe, don't you think? Very severe. I got one the other day saying, Andy, can you please not use the Americanism uh, nap? We should use the word kip. Goodness me. That's precious. Very. I use the word siesta. I don't use either. <laughs> now, of, of course you do. Of course you do. <laughs> but gossip is the connections between each other, sort of the, uh, the, not the dots, but the things in between, which is kind of how your brain works, you know. You kind of comp compare and contrast different realities and then find out the ways that they're connected in between, right? Well, exactly. I mean, on kissing, for example, I was in Indonesia and I, I noticed that some people were to be kissed and some people were not to be kissed. Some people were to be hugged and some weren't to be hugged. And I thought, this is totally out of hand. Are just strangers or are you trying to hug strangers on in, down the street? I wasn't right, but people <laughs> do try to hug strangers, particularly Westerners, you see, at the hotel, hotels. Oh, lots of I see. People who think they know you want to hug you. At one time before COVID-19, people were slapping a kiss on your mush at the slightest provocation. And I thought, I've really got to think through this. Who do I want to kiss? Who do I want to be kissed by? And that leads you, to follow up on what you were saying, to hugs, you see. Who do I want to hug? Who do I not want to hug or be hugged by? Hugging is about equality. I can't hug the Queen because we are not equals. So in an era when everyone is equal, everyone's hugging everyone. I don't want to be hugged by everyone. So I thought I will write this piece and I will deliver it. In fact, I delivered it, I seem to think, at a literary festival or two. And people were very relieved to know they didn't have <laughs> to put up with being hugged if they didn't want it's to. It's not compulsory. It's not. However, it does feel compulsory when you're saying goodbye to a group of people, some of whom you're close with and one maybe that you're not. You hug the first three because you're intimate with them, but then that... That, that fourth person who you don't really know very well, you do feel the expectation to hug them. And how did you get out of it politely, Robert? 
by being French. You see, the French do everything better. And one of the things in particular they do better is they have a ritual for kissing, not hugging, but for kissing. So in Paris or in Nantes or in Marseille, it's a different ritual, but it may be two or it may be three, very rarely, I think, one, on the cheek. You don't actually put your lips on the cheek. Very COVID safe. That's going to a different level let alone any other kind of kissing that you can think of, which is really making a suggestion that has to be thought through very carefully. But that mwah on the cheek is simply a ritual. Everyone understands that. It's not embarrassing. I can do that to Macron if I wish. It's, well, I wouldn't, I suppose, to Macron. But just about anybody else, it's, it's an accepted ritual. We don't have accepted rituals. We don't, and they've changed. They, they're constantly changing, which is probably the problem. There's no agreement on um, greetings and farewells anymore. There used to be handshake for everyone you're not close with. But we, we don't even do that anymore. No. I think the handshake is, is a very good ritual, really. It uh, has a very interesting history as well, which you can research if you want to, which has to do with swords and... Spears, showing your enemy you're un- unarmed, I believe. Something like that. Yeah. That's right. You probably remember better than I do. But I just won't kiss. That's all. You just stand a little bit back. Except in Paris, when I will. <laughs> when in Paris. Uh, you note that there can be a difference between capital B books that matter and books that matter to us. Uh, do we sometimes get too caught up in the importance of literature, the pressure to read what we should read? All the time, I think, almost every day. I can't tell you how often I hear the phrase, I really should read this, or I've always meant to read this, I bought this, it's waiting for me to read. There is no should. Read what gives you pleasure. Pleasure is the most important thing in life, from my point of view, since meaning is impossible to track down. I've decided at this age, I've given up on meaning. Pleasure. You want to read À la recherche du temps perdu? Please, read it, but don't feel remotely obliged. I've never read it. I never will read it. I've got better things to do with my time. War and Peace, you've never read it? Good. Read something else. Read Helen Garner. You don't want to read Helen Garner? Don't read Helen Garner. It's your choice. Do it for pleasure. If you're doing a literature course at university, it's a different matter. But in life, you're not doing a course. No one's giving you a mark out of 10. There is no tick, no gold stamp. Just do it because you love it and for no other reason. And do you find that there are people that like to talk about a book to be seen to be talking about a book, not that they enjoyed it? Less perhaps than once upon a time because the choice is so vast nowadays. People are downloading books onto their Kindles. Am I allowed to say the name of something like Kindle on the ABC? And they're not actually getting around to reading them. And so they have 120 books on their Kindles and are not reading them. I don't hear those conversations as often. And then newspapers are not alerting people to which books they might with pleasure, read. I think they're mainly asking their friends which books their friends have read. I don't hear those conversations as often as I once did. And I think the whole notion of five-star writers is disappearing. I think there are celebrity writers, which is a different matter altogether. Uh, People who sell two million copies, five million copies, nine million copies of their books, they're celebrity writers. But those writers apart... I think it's perhaps a more level playing field than once it was. Are you on social media? None. I've never even seen Facebook. Why not? 
I, I can't see why I would. Why would I? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, no, I have no I, no good answers for you. It's a, a hole that you fall in and you probably will never get out of, an addiction that's difficult to cleanse yourself of. It uh, makes you become uh, focused on how you appear, not what you really feel. There's no upsides really, but I, I was just curious because this is kind of the thing that my generation fall into rather than reading books and it's endless. It's no, There's no start, beginning and end. Uh, doom scrolling, as you'd be familiar with. So would you ever consider being on the social media networks? No, there is no reason for me to be on it. If I want to speak to someone, I ring them up. But if you are the curious magpie that you are, doesn't it create more possibilities for connections? I shouldn't. I don't want connections. I want to know things. So I'll Google things. But I don't need to talk to anybody, really. Or if I do, I'll get their phone number. That's what phones are for. Are you asking for my phone number, Robert? <laughs> Robert, it's been such an absolute pleasure to speak with you and to have you here in the drawing room. Robert Desai, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. And thank you, Andy. Robert Desai has been my guest in the drawing room. His latest book, Abracadabra, is out now through Brio Books. And that is all for the show tonight. I'm Andy Park. I'll be back tomorrow from 6pm. Bye for now. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listener.